your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, welcome. Another edition of uh, the Dr. Joe Show. And uh, I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. My background is in chemistry. And as I always like to point out, chemistry, I think, is the science that ties all the other sciences together because it is the study of molecules. And if you understand molecules, molecular structure, and chemical reactions, you kind of get a feel for what can and cannot happen in the world. Let me toss out a question uh, for you. Uh, The term craft, K-R-A-F-T, process, refers to what and why? The craft process refers to what and why. We're not talking about the craft uh, dinner or anything like that. So the craft process, what does it refer to and, uh, and why does it refer to that? Some call it a soft drinks. Other call it soda. Well, soft, of course, refers to the absence of alcohol, which is uh, found in the hard beverages. But why the word soda? So, you know what, we'll get around to that. But first, I'm going to give you some what I think is interesting background. And we're going to start with naturally carbonated waters. And these, of course, have been around since antiquity. Hot magma deep within the earth releases carbon dioxide gas. And that gas dissolves in water, which then comes bubbling to the surface. Perrier, of course, is a classic example of a naturally carbonated uh, water, although truth be told, at the Perrier spring, they actually draw off the carbon dioxide and then they re-inject it into the water uh, so that the water always has a constant level of of CO2. Well, today, most fizzy drinks are carbonated artificially. Uh, That is, they have carbon dioxide pumped into them. And this is a process that traces back to Joseph Priestley, who in 1767 noted that a neighboring brewery released copious amounts of what in those days was called fixed air. Today, of course, we call it carbon dioxide. And he found that pouring water back and forth between two glasses held above one of the brewery's fermentation tanks resulted in mildly carbonated water. Well, Priestley knew that just a few years earlier, Scottish physician Joseph Black had produced this fixed air by treating limestone, that is, of course, calcium carbonate, with an acid. This prompted him, that is Priestley, to design a simple apparatus to generate fixed air and infuse it into water. It was commonly believed in those days that carbonated water had health properties, and Priestley mistakenly believed that drinking it would prevent scurvy. He even provided Captain James Cook with a method to make carbonated water on his 1776 voyage to the South Seas. Cook's crew did not suffer from scurvy, but you know what? That had nothing to do with the men drinking carbonated water. It had to do with them eating the vitamin C-rich sauerkraut and fruit syrup that Cook had taken along because he was abiding by the suggestion of Scottish physician James Lynn's 1753 publication, A Treatise of the Scurvy. And, of course, Lind eventually became very famous uh, for finding that scurvy was a disease that was caused by, by a lack of certain nutrients in the diet. 
He didn't know, of course, it was vitamin C, but he figured out that it was something in the diet that was needed in order to ward off uh, uh, scurvy. And uh, British ships eventually took along limes in order to prevent scurvy, and uh, that's why uh, the British sometimes are still called limeys. Priestley did not capitalize on his discovery, but John Newth, another Scottish physician, did. He designed an apparatus that people could use at home to generate carbon dioxide by dripping an acid into a container of limestone. And then along came German-Swiss amateur scientist Johann Jakob Schweppe, who developed the first practical process to manufacture bottled carbonated water, and consequently he is regarded as the father of soft drinks. An American contribution came along in 1810, when a process to make a single serving of carbonated water by adding an acid to a solution of sodium bicarbonate was patented. All right, so now we can finally answer the question of why soft drinks are called sodas. Since these drinks were made with sodium bicarbonate, they were called sodas. But that brings up another question. Where does the term sodium come from? Commonly known as baking soda because it can be used to generate the carbon dioxide gas needed to make baked goods rise, sodium bicarbonate is made by reacting sodium carbonate with carbon dioxide. Historically, sodium carbonate was extracted from the ashes of plants that grow in salty soil, such as the annual shrub that was called salsola soda. It grows around the Mediterranean. Consequently, these ashes came to be known as soda ash because they came from the salsola soda plant. When the English chemist Humphrey Davy combined this ash with lime, that lime could be obtained by heating limestone, he got a novel white substance. He melted it and subjected it to an electric current, and that yielded a shiny metal. In 1807, Davy recognized this as a new element. Since it originated in soda ash, it came to be called sodium. The substance that had formed by the reaction of the soda ash with lime was later determined to be sodium hydroxide, or lye. Curiously, the chemical symbol for sodium is Na. S would have been obvious had it not already been taken by sulfur. Besides extraction from soda ash, sodium carbonate also occurs in nature in large deposits such as found in the Natron Valley in Egypt. Logically, Egyptians called the substance natron and used it in the mummification process as a preservative based on its ability to draw water out of tissues. The Romans called it natrium, the term from which the symbol Na was coined by Swedish chemist Berzelius in 1814. Sodium carbonate or soda ash has played a highly significant role in history. Along with silica and limestone, it is the critical component of glass. In papermaking, it is used to remove the lignin from wood, leaving behind the cellulose fibers that are then compressed into paper. When reacted with fats, sodium carbonate produces soap. Added to hard water, it acts as a softener by precipitating the hardness minerals, calcium and magnesium, as their carbonates. Since these minerals interfere with the action of soap, Sodium carbonate makes washing easier and is therefore also known as washing soda. Because of all these applications, by the end of the 18th century in Europe, sodium carbonate was in short supply. 
burning kelp produced a fair amount, but not enough. There were no large natron deposits, so the search was on for some chemical process to produce it. In 1792, Nicolas Leblanc found a way to make it from salt, sulfuric acid, limestone, and coal. However, the side products, hydrochloric acid and calcium sulfide, were major pollutants. And then in 1861, Belgian chemist Ernest Solvay developed a superior process by reacting salt with ammonia and carbon dioxide. This Solvay process is efficient and generates minimum of waste products. It is the process that is still used today. So now you see where a question of why soda is called soda can lead. There are all kinds of fascinating connections in, in science, and here is one of them where a quest for why sodas are called soda led us to the history of sodium carbonate and the manufacturing process that is used today to make loads of this material, which is commercially so important. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I did have a question uh, about the craft process. And uh, Jean-René, I think, uh, has the answer. Hello? Am I, on, uh, am I on the air? Yes, you are. Oh, okay. Hello, doctor. Um, this is because the, um, the wood paper, the wood pulp, are produced from wood chips boiled in an alkaline solution containing sodium sulfate. So I believe that sodium is the theme of the day for you. Yeah, it is, it is. But why Why is it called the craft process? Um, that I cannot tell you, sorry. <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's the question. So we'll have that uh, hanging out there. Okay, we want to know why this process of, of making uh, pulp from, uh, from wood, why is it called the craft uh, process? And uh, I'm going to supplement that with another question. And uh, that is, uh, what metal is thought to have contributed to the fall of the Roman Empire? What metal contributed to the fall of the Roman Empire? Now, I want to tell you something very interesting that, uh, uh, that I, uh, I came across, which is uh, uh, a story about a particular type of uh, gummy bear. And uh, these are the so-called Haribo gummy bears. And uh, there was a very clever letter that was written by a consumer who uh, uh, seems to have overindulged uh, in this um, uh, gummy bear, which was advertised as having no sugar added. And uh, I, I thought I would read you her comment because uh, it is uh, indeed uh, very funny. So it turned out that this unfortunate young lady gulped down a bunch of these gummy bears at work during a night shift. And then she wrote the next morning while driving, quote, My stomach suddenly begins to cramp and I feel the immediate urge to empty my bowels. I'm speeding along, arching my back, practicing Lama's breathing techniques, anything to stall the inevitable. Finally, I spot the end of a brushy trail and whip my truck sideways, thrusting the driver's side door open and leaping from the seat to scurry around to the other side. I turn around with fingers in waistband about to drop 
and look up to my horror, realizing it is indeed the end of a driveway and the folks outside are staring down toward me. So you get back into into the uh, into the car, and um, uh, goes on with this uh, 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 story of, of what happened uh, another time when she purchased this. I don't know why she would have done it again. I went to the store to purchase some medicine. I had to only only a ten dollar change. Scrounge around and uh, finally uh, uh, bought these gummy bears, and uh, the prize gummies uh, had sort of an interesting effect uh, uh, on her. So she says, I sit here writing this review at 4 a.m. from my porcelain throne, a fixture you will become all too familiar with if you choose to eat these cute little bears from the pits of hell. Like the slow build-up of Martin Scorsese's film, however, those bears were waiting for their baptism scene to destroy my insides. It started with the cramping, very akin to doing a thousand crunches and then being forced to hold the thousand and first crunch indefinitely. Then came the initial run, which opened the proverbial floodgates. I'm over 30, and I'm beginning to wonder if these bears know that and want to send me back to the can for each year I've been on this earth make me wonder why I'd ever been born. In between gastrointestinal bouts of pressure washing the inside of my toilet, I lay in bed feeling as if someone were to punch me in the stomach, I'd explode, turning the walls of my bedroom into a soiled Jackson Pollock rendition. So she questions of what was going on with these uh, uh, gummy bears, which were sugar-free. Well, it turns out that while they didn't have any sweetener uh, from the sugar family, family not, not sucrose added, they had what we call sugar alcohols. And the, the one that uh, was present in these gummy bears was maltitol. And these sugar alcohols, which do have some sweetness, but they are not metabolized the same way as sugar, so that you don't get the same kind of, of uh, you know, uh, calorie influx from them. However, some people, they have this, uh, let us say, interesting effect of loosening the bowels because the sugar alcohols actually can act as a, a laxative. And when you take a look at the label of uh, of these gummy bears, it says... Consumption of some sugar-free candies may cause stomach discomfort and or a laxative effect. Individual tolerances will vary. If this is the first time you've tried these candies, we recommend beginning with one-fourth of a serving size or less. So they're actually admitting on the product label uh, that this can have this uh, uh, rather uh, disturbing um, effect. So maltitol is what causes this, but there are others, uh, other sugar alcohols, mannitol, uh, lactitol. Uh, this this can also have an effect on your uh, guts. And uh, some people, if they ingest uh, these gummy bears or any other food that contains these sugar alcohols, uh, will produce uh, copious amounts of gas if they are lucky. And if uh, they are unlucky, uh, it won't only be gas that will emerge from the rear uh, portals. So uh, what can I tell you? Uh, you want to be cognizant of the fact that these sugar-free gummy bears and other sugar-free candies that instead have what we call sugar alcohols, that they can have this effect. So what you want to look for 
uh, if you want to make sure that that you are not going to uh, evacuate your bowels with with these uh, sweets. Uh, on the label, look for erythritol, xylitol, sorbitol, mannitol, lactitol, maltitol, polyglycitol. So all of these alls, these are what we call the sugar alcohols. So indeed, they will not provide the same calories as provided by sugar. But uh, you may have uh, some interesting adventures if you uh, indulge in these. Now, swallowing one or two of these gummy bears is not going to, uh, to do it. Uh, but like they say, who can stop at, at just one? So you wonder, you know, why... Why are these things uh, put into your food? Uh, I guess it is to cater to the people who are worried about excessive intake of, of calories, want to cut down on calories, so they look for sugar-free products, but they still want the sweetness. Well, it's, this is uh, capable of providing an experience that is rather bitter than, uh, than sweet. Uh, but again, it's a question of dose. So eating, you know, one or two of these gummy bears is, is not going to be a problem. And also, uh, let's point out that not all gummy bears are made with sugar alcohols. Uh, there are all kinds of gummy bears out there. Some of them are, uh, I, I would guess most of them are actually made with, uh, with sugar. But uh, uh, let's face it, gummy bears are, are not nutritious. Uh, you can live quite a contented life without ever indulging uh, in these. All right, we have to take a break. We'll um, check the news, and after that, we'll be back. And remember, the question that I still have hanging out there is what metal has been linked with the downfall of the Roman Empire? And also, we're looking to find out why the craft process, which converts uh, uh, wood into pulp, uh, is so-called. What The origin of the word craft. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, let's see if anyone has an answer to my question. I think we have Paul on the line. Paul? How are you? Is that Paul? Yes, Paul. Oh, hi. hi. So the answer for the, uh, the metal that uh, supposedly led to the fall of Rome was lead. Right, and how did it lead to the fall? Well, they were using that as uh, piping, uh, and so all their the fountains that they had, uh, people drinking the the water, drinking the lead completely. The, that's they were right. They they that. had pipes made of lead. They had all kinds of uh, vessels made Ooh. of lead, and they stored their wine in uh, lead containers because that made the wine sweeter. Uh, Correct. Lead acetate would dissolve in the in in the wine and make it uh, sweeter. And of course, lead has an effect on on uh, on the brain. And the theory is that some of the very poor decisions that the Roman generals made in their wars was because their brain was tainted with lead. Very good. <laughs> okay, you have a answer to my other question about craft. Yeah, I do, actually, because I, I had a friend of mine that was working at the Dashua plant in Quebec City when I used to go to job there. And uh, so the word craft uh, is actually, uh, it's a German word, or meaning like it's a strength. Yes, and why why was that word used? Uh, the word was used for the uh, the bonding of the, uh, 
uh, of the uh, Chippets. Uh, yeah, it uh, made it made for very strong paper. Is right. and the, the German word was Kraft. So that's the right. the craft process, and uh, that is still used in order to to make paper. And uh, you will smell around pulp mills. You will s smell some of the sulfur compounds that that come off. Okay, very good. <clears throat> so since that was uh, answered, let me throw one other question out for you guys. Uh, what were canaries in coal mines used to test for? Coal mines, what were they used to test for? All right, uh, this week, uh, the terrible, terrible <clears throat> explosion in Beirut. And uh, as you know, it was ammonium nitrate improperly stored. And uh, I suspect that uh, asking most people about ammonium nitrate would draw a blank. Yet this is one of the most important chemicals in the world. As a fertilizer, it helps to feed an increasingly hungry global population. And as an explosive, it is critical to the mining and construction industries. It can also be used as an explosive for harmful purposes. And of course, we saw that in Oklahoma City uh, and the first attempt by terrorists to attack the World Trade Center. Uh, some terrorists in London used it. And now, of course, we had this terrible explosion uh, in Beirut, although that uh, is uh, not uh, one that we attribute to terrorism. It was an accident. Of course, there's nothing novel about the possibility of a chemical acting as a double-edged sword. Nitroglycerin, morphine, cocaine, methylmercaptan, chlorine, numerous others have both the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde characteristics. Uh, these, like ammonium nitrate, cannot be classified as good or bad, safe or dangerous. It all depends on how and for what purpose they are used. Synthetic fertilizers have been one of the greatest scientific contributions to life. Fritz Haber's synthesis of ammonia from nitrogen and hydrogen in the early years of the 20th century, and its subsequent conversion to ammonium nitrate by reaction with nitric acid fueled the green revolution that dramatically increased crop yields. Nitrogen is an essential nutrient for plants, and if it isn't supplied from the soil, plants cannot grow. Applying ammonia, urea, or ammonium nitrate to fields replaces the nitrogen that has been incorporated into crops. But there's a but. <clears throat> well, isn't there always a but? Nitrates are very soluble in water, so some end up being washed into lakes and rivers from agricultural fields. Here they present a double-pronged problem. Nitrates can fertilize aquatic plants, which can then grow in an uncontrolled fashion and pose a problem when they die. As they decompose, they use up the water's dissolved oxygen content, which then has an effect on any wildlife that requires oxygen. Basically, that effect is death. This is what causes the so-called dead zones, where fish are no longer found, such as parts of the Gulf of Mexico. There's one thing I want to point out here, because I know that a lot of people make this mistake or are confused when, when we talk about dissolved oxygen in water. We are not talking about the O of H2O. H2O is a compound where the hydrogen and oxygens are covalently bonded. <clears throat> oxygen is a gas, and oxygen gas can dissolve in water. 
So when we talk about losing the amount of oxygen in the water, we're talking about the oxygen gas that is dissolved in the water. The same way that sugar dissolves in water, oxygen gas can dissolve in, in water as well. And when there isn't enough oxygen dissolved in the water, which has been used up because when the wildlife dies, it uses up the oxygen in, in, in the water as it decomposes, that's when we get these dead zones. <clears throat> so... Uh, one approach being tried in California to establish wetlands is to establish these wetlands on farms and have runoff flow through these before being released into natural water systems. Plants such as cattails or creeping wild rye planted in the wetlands foster the growth of bacteria on their roots that convert nitrates into nitrogen that is then released into the air. And that, of course, is not a problem. Air is 80% nitrogen, and nitrogen is an inert gas. Furthermore, the wetlands also reduce the amount of pesticides and waterborne parasites like giardia that are washed away. Another problem is that waters that accumulate agricultural runoff can serve as a source of drinking water. Water treatment plants monitor but do not remove nitrates. Excess nitrate in drinking water can result in acquired methemoglobinemia, a condition in which the oxygen-carrying ability of hemoglobin is impaired. This occurs when nitrates convert ferrous iron and hemoglobin to what we call ferric iron, which has a reduced ability to release the oxygen it has picked up from the lungs. As a result, there can be headaches, nausea, uh, difficulty breathing, rapid or irregular heartbeats, lethargy, and in extreme cases, coma and death. There's no issue if nitrates and nitrites are kept below the maximum contaminant level of uh, 10 and 1 parts per million, respectively. Nitrates are also absorbed into growing plants with lettuce, beets, carrots, green beans, spinach, parsley, cabbage, radishes, celery, and collard greens being particularly rich. There's no danger of excess nitrate intake from foods in fact, the nitrate content here may well be beneficial. A study has found a reduced risk of blood clot formation by reducing the number of lead blood cells with increased intake of nitrate garnered a great deal of publicity. Although the blood was thinned, its oxygen-carrying capacity was not reduced. What most press reports did not mention was that the study was done on rats that were dosed with nitrates in their drinking water while the oxygen content of the air they inhaled was manipulated. Hardly a perfect model for humans eating nitrate-rich vegetables. Of course, this is not at all an argument for not eating these veggies. They have all sorts of vitamins, minerals, and phytochemicals that may be beneficial. Indeed, leafy vegetables such as spinach, lettuce, uh, beets are rich in nitrates, and their consumption may actually be secret to the heart-healthy Mediterranean diet. So uh, now you know a little bit more about uh, ammonium nitrate and, and nitrates. And again, it goes to show you that once you start delving into a subject, you go deeper and deeper, it becomes more and more interesting. But there's no question that the massive amounts of ammonium nitrate that were stored in Beirut uh, were negligently stored. And there had been warnings indeed before that uh, this was 
essentially a bomb waiting to explode and that is exactly what happened. We don't know what uh, ignited this and that may never be uh, found out, uh, but it certainly was a terrible and devastating uh, explosion. And uh, it just goes to show you that ammonium nitrate is the classic example of a double-edged sword. It can feed the world, but it can also kill people. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Someone uh, asking the question on... uh, sent in, uh, wasn't it uh, nitrates that exploded in Bhopal also? No, that wasn't. That was methyl isocyanate. Uh, that was a quite a different uh, story. So, yeah, Bhopal was a horrific explosion, but, uh, uh, yeah, that was not caused by uh, uh, ammonium nitrate. Uh, also, because I was talking about carbonated water, the uh, question was, is unsweetened carbonated water bad for you? And no, the answer is no. Uh, carbonated water is fine. And the only thing it can do is uh, uh, make you burp. Uh, there have been stories about uh, carbonated water uh, being bad for the teeth because carbonated water is indeed acidic. When you dissolve carbon dioxide in water, uh, you get uh, uh, carbonic acid. But the contact time is not enough uh, in order to do uh, any kind of uh, of damage. So there hopefully are the uh, answers to, to, to those questions. Now, I had also asked about uh, uh, what uh, canaries were uh, used for. And uh, so let's go to the lines and see if anyone does have the uh, answer to that. Having a little trouble here with the lines; they're not lighting up. So I'm I'm just guessing that uh, uh, this is Morgan. Morgan. I'm right here. Hi. Who do we have here? Uh, the, Morgan. 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 Oh, hi. Yes, sir. Uh, I worked. I I, I worked in many mines. Uh huh. And then I can tell you exactly why we used to take our lunch boxes down a thousand feet down in the mines. We used to feed the canaries, and we used to feed the rats, okay? Because the first thing is when somebody's drilling a pocket looking for something and they release a thing of gas, right? which is deadly, yeah. which is deadly for the... It'll kill everybody. Yeah. You follow the canaries, you follow the rats. That is why we fed them. You follow them because they take you to fresh oxygen. Well, what... Um... What gas is the problem? What Depend, depending what gas they while they're drilling for gold or coal or whatever. Yes, you, you, but you what is the, there's one specific gas that is really worrisome in in mines, and that it is could what be the, anything that anything that kills humans, you know. Yes, but what and no, what is it? The, the reason why we feed the canaries and the rats is we follow them when they start running. Right. We start running behind them yes. to get oxygen, otherwise we are dead. Yes, that's a very good idea. But canaries are extremely sensitive, and the question is, which particular gas are they so sensitive to? Oh, okay. Now, the, uh, it could be any kind of gas, because when you're drilling inside the mine, you don't know which pocket you are hitting. Well, there, there's not that many gases that that can be found in mines, but there's and one. There, there's, there's, there's one that the canaries are specifically sensitive to. That that was the question. 
Okay, anyway, we'll see if someone else ha has uh, an answer to that. Again, let me see if we got the right. Uh, uh, is that Al? It's Al, it's Al here, Doug. Hi, Al. You had a uh, question. Yeah, um, I have a, well, uh, the, uh, the canary in the coal mine. Would that be methane? No, uh, you certainly do find methane uh, down there, but okay. methane is not the really dangerous one. Okay, I have a question about yeah. that ter terrible explosion in Beirut Harbor. Yeah. Um, as we all know, the the um, the reaction of the uh, ammonium nitrate uh, results in the uh, generation of uh, water vapor and uh, and I think it's nitric. Uh, you 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 get a number of compounds. You get molecular nitrogen, okay. and you get various oxides of nitrogen. You get now, when we. When we see the video of the actual explosion from several angles, right. we see this huge gray-colored, uh, rapidly expanding mushroom yes. cloud. Is that the water vapor from the Well, reaction? certainly water vapor is in there, but the color, the, the brownish color that you see is, is the nitrogen dioxide. Okay, uh, I'm just wondering if that was, like, if the blast was primarily the result of that big um, mushroom cloud of, like, steam very well, any explosion is yeah. uh, is due to very rapidly expanding gases. That's what produces the shock wave. Okay. And, it, and, and has has anyone done any calculations of the energy yield? Because there was uh, what was it, two thousand seven hundred tons of oh, it, of it, it's it's mind boggling that that it much have ammonium been an astronomical amount oh. of energy released. Oh, fantastic! Well, look, it it practically leveled the city. You know, it was a fantastic yeah, yeah. amount of energy that, that released. Was, my uh, God, that was almost like like a Hiroshima scale. Yeah, um, well, not uh, quite, reaction. but I mean, it was it was very bad. And uh, I mean, obviously, uh, that amount of ammonium nitrate should never be stored in in one place. And, no, no, and I guess uh, not. as as we are now beginning to learn, uh, they knew about this, and there had been warnings before of not to uh, store it uh, there. So. Wow! Uh, yeah, ter terrible. Well, okay. Well, thank you, Joe, uh, Doctor Joe. Your your show is always very informative. Well, thank you. I I enjoy listening to your talks. There. Thank you very much. Thank you. An explosion is very often characterized. This is scientific definition: a sudden going away of things from the place where they have been. That's what an explosion is, and it is caused by the uh, very rapid expansion of of gases, and it doesn't much matter what the gas is. Uh, whether it's nitrogen, oxygen, water vapor, as long as it is very, very quickly expanding, it is pushing the air in front of it. And that is what causes the uh, the shock wave, which, which can be uh, so devastating. And, um, you know, ammonium nitrate, is, as I said before, is your uh, classic double-edged uh, sword. Okay, I, I think uh, uh, we have John. Uh, John? Yes, hi. hi. I know the answer. I, I believe I know the answer to the, can, the canary question. Yes. It's uh, a carbon monoxide. Yes, it is carbon monoxide. Car carbon okay. monoxide is the most dangerous gas that you find in, in mines because it has no smell at all, and yes. uh, it's colorless, so you don't know that it is there, and you can very quickly be overcome by carbon monoxide. Do you know how carbon monoxide kills you, what the mechanism is? It's actually very um, interesting. Suffocation? <laughs> well, uh, yes, but uh, how? 
Oh, no, I, I don't know. Okay, what well, you know that the uh, oxygen is transported around the blood uh, by being yes. attached to hemoglobin. Yes. Hemoglobin is found in red blood cells. And in the mi middle of the hemoglobin molecule, you have uh, an iron uh, ion. And it is to that that oxygen binds. But it turns out that carbon uh, monoxide binds more strongly to that uh, iron than oxygen does. So when you're inhaling the carbon monoxide, you okay. displace the oxygen from hemoglobin. So although the red blood cells are still circulating around your body, it is not delivering any oxygen. I see. Okay. So you so you die essentially of oxygen starvation. Deprivation. Yes. Yeah. So fantastic. And you, carbon monoxide, of course, is is not only produced in mines; it can be produced by any uh, burning process where uh, there is an inadequate amount of oxygen. So it can even happen at home. Uh, people who have furnaces that don't work properly, you can produce carbon monoxide. And, you know, there are every year there are cases of people dying at home from carbon monoxide poisoning. That's why you should have a carbon monoxide detector at home if you have a, a, a furnace that burns uh, fuel. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, people also commit suicide with carbon monoxide by attaching a hose to the exhaust pipe of their car and then leading the hose into the car because car exhaust also contains carbon monoxide. Sad story. All right, well, that is it. And once again, we have uh, run out of time, but we'll be back with you same time, same station. Next week, Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock, I'm Joe Schwartz. And until then, I hope that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. CJAD 800 is proud to be a part of Montreal Pride. The 360-degree edition presented by TD takes place online August 10th through 16th. Seven days, seven themes. With